You're listening to the sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we'll see the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Christmas. (laughs) It is my favorite time of the year. I'm, I'm not kidding. It still is. And it's always been true. Now, have you, ever, have you ever got to the end of Christmas, though, and thought, next year, here's what we're going to do to make it even better? I do that all the time. Like, next year, we're going to have even more traditions. I mean, we have so many. I can't even keep track. In fact, we have so many we forget. Just name like, oh, we forgot to do whatever. Like, sometimes, like last year, I think we lit all the Advent candles on Christmas Eve. I really do. I think that's exactly what we did. Have you ever done, like, they're sitting, like, we need to light this. It's like, oh, it's Monday. Oh, well, I mean, one of them should be burned down more than the others. Let's, right? So one year we tried to even it out ahead. Of, for what? In case somebody came over, and like, oh, they've been using their Advent candles. Like, no, they're just all up there. But, so we're always trying to look for, <laughs> we're always trying to, look, you've forgotten to light them too, right? I mean, if you have, don't you? And you're like, what do I do? It's, now I've got a light late in the morning. So anyway, it's a big conundrum in my house. So every year when Christmas comes to an end, I'm always thinking about, you know what we need to do next year to make it even better? Right? And then, you know, because I'm always thinking it just wasn't everything it could have been. Now, I grew up, I loved Christmas more than anything as a kid. And I grew up, and my brother and my sister are quite a bit older than me, um, my sister's closest, she will, she'll never hear this, my sister's closest to me in age, she's 13 years older than me, um, and so I grew up sort of like an only child, and by the time I was born, my parents were super relaxed about having kids, right? So my mom's in her 40s, my dad's in his upper, my dad's close to 50 by the time I'm born, and so all they, they basically just spoiled me, right? I mean, once they got used to their later life being interrupted by me, and so we had this great, great Christmases every year. And I can remember a time, I can remember a night, we went shopping. And my dad never went shopping. Uh, but we were downtown where I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia. And I mean, I'm not kidding. It was snowing. And people were everywhere. And I was up on my dad's shoulders, right? So I must have been pretty young. I was up on my dad's shoulders. We're walking through. There's lights everywhere. There's garland hanging from like the poles, the whatever they are, the phone, I guess they were phone poles. I said, I said lamp posts earlier, but it sounded like the 1890s or something. I don't know what they were, but there were lights, big lights hanging off of them, lights everywhere. You could hear music. The storefronts were all lit up. They had all kinds of toys and stuff in there. Um, and then there was a peanut shop. You could smell it from like, and still there, by the way. This is not like ages ago. You could smell the peanuts roasting like blocks away. And my dad would get this big bag of chocolate-covered peanuts and hold it, and I'm up on his shoulder, I'm reaching down and getting them, and we're walking through, and it was just magical. And at home, at home we would always have a big Christmas Eve dinner, which we, we still sort of do. Uh, but then the weeks leading up, right, we'd decorate, the, of course, we'd decorate the tree, and my mom would tolerate me putting icicles, you know, remember icicles? They're like these silver things that just clutter up the tree, unless you have them, and then they're, they're really beautiful. Um, seriously, I love them. I just don't know where to buy them anymore. And so we would put my mom, would, like, I'd just clump them on everywhere. Uh, we'd decorate the tree, and we got like, actual Christmas cards in the mail, right? Seriously, I mean, hard cards that you could hold in your hand. 
open it up and say who it's from. And it wasn't just a picture of somebody that year, which is fine, right? But there would be all kinds of different messages, and we would literally tape them to our mantle. We had a mantle, like above a fireplace. We'd tape them there, and we would get so many that we would tape them to the porch, the door going out to the porch. It was like a, off the living room. Just everywhere. And I would go in there as a kid. I would turn off all the lights and turn the Christmas tree on. And I would just sit there and stare at the lights. And then also stare at the ceiling, all the reflections of all the different color lights. And just think, there is nothing better than this. I loved it. And every year I could not wait for Christmas. And it didn't hurt that I had two weeks off of school either, right? And so Christmas morning would finally come. I wouldn't sleep at all the night before. My grandmother would be there. Uh, we'd wake, I would wake up, I mean, I didn't wake up. I just finally couldn't stand it anymore. It's still dark. I would come out, and then my mom would stop me. She would hear me. She'd stop me. And I later learned it was because she would stop me until coffee was ready. I'm not kidding. That's turned out to be, that's why she always stopped me, is because she wasn't going in there at like 5 a.m. until there was coffee. So we have all these pictures of my mom with coffee just sitting there, every, and my dad's smiling, my mom's with coffee. And so I would rip through my presents, just rip through them. And remember, I was essentially kind of like an only child, and my brother and sister, if they were visiting, they would just be like, we never got, we didn't get this much combined. I'm like, can't help you there, man, right? It's all mine, right? Here's some underwear for you or something, right? So, right, I mean, like, whatever, or socks, if that's better. So, I mean, one year they gave me, like, my parents gave me a drum set. I got a drum set. Um, and I just, I can still remember my mom just looking at my dad like, really? I mean, you work every day. I'm home. Two weeks later, I'm not making this up, the drum set disappeared and was replaced by a guitar. And that really sort of changed the musical trajectory of my life. But for two weeks, I was a drummer, sort of, right? And that's about as long as, like, my mom could stand it. So, but then Christmas would be over, and I can distinctly remember one year, I was like this every year, but one year in particular, because the minute Christmas morning was over, I went from here, and it was like a pretty quick decline, sliding down. And I can remember one, and I'm, I mean, there's stuff everywhere. There's even like some stuff from like an ant that I haven't even opened yet because I, I basically know it's going to be a letdown. So, but there's still some presents I could open, but I can remember running downstairs to the basement and like rifling through the box, basically thinking, is that it? Is, is there more? There's got to be more, right? I mean, even though there's, the floor is going to break with the weight of stuff upstairs, there's got to be more. And then I found, though, as I got older, that tendency didn't go away sometimes after Christmas. And I don't want to sound like the Grinch or something, right? I love Christmas, still do. But there's still this, isn't there something more? Maybe I'm the only one. Have you ever thought, or maybe you thought, man, I'm glad that's over. I don't know. But there's a really deep down good reason why we look forward to something like Christmas. There's a really good deep down reason why we like getting presents and we like getting together with people. And we like the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes of Christmas. There's also a really good reason why when all that's over, we might feel a little less than fulfilled by it. Maybe. And that's why we like to focus on Advent here. 
Not because, I mean, I'm, not because we're against Christmas or against trees, nothing. You get to keep all that. But the, one of the reasons we focus on Advent is because it really focuses this time of year, not just on a day, but on the season of this time of the year. Now, Advent, traditionally, when, it, when they first sort of started it, was a, a period of 40 days. 40 days that, of course, celebrates the coming of Jesus, but it led up to a big celebration called Epiphany, which I won't get into, which starts in, in January, right? But the time of Advent was a time of fasting, not for 40 days, but you could fast, fasting and prayer. I mean, you could fast as much as you want. You could pray as much as you want. Preparation and repentance, right? Those are like four things we maybe don't think about too much. We think about Christmas coming, right? I mean, fasting and, and uh, repentance and preparation and prayer and we don't maybe emphasize those things, but that's what it was. All looking forward to celebrating the coming of Jesus and then his ministry in Epiphany. And that's what Advent is. Advent is really traditionally and still should be not just a season of, oh, look what happened. It is that. But it's a season of longing because we don't just look back to the coming of Jesus, we long for His coming again, because we still live, we still live in a season, a long season, a period of longing, longing for His return, not just looking back that He came once before. And that makes Advent and sort of Christmas a little different, but we can, we can obviously, we can put them together. Now, so it's a season of longing. It's a season of longing where it really highlights living according to, based on every single day, what God has done in the past, His perfect track record in the past, I like to call it, which guarantees if God has done this, and if He makes a promise, He's got to be able to keep it given what He's done so that we can live today in the present by faith, not by sight. Longing but knowing the fulfillment is coming. That's Advent. That's what it is, or at least part of it. And the people that we're going to read about today were in a time of, I mean, longing hardly captures it. And it's from Isaiah chapter 9. We'd read a little bit of it earlier, so I'd like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going we're gonna to look at three things today, and that is longing in the darkness, and that longing means believing, and finally, longing fulfilled, or how God fulfills our longing in ways that kind of upends that longing and redirects it in ways better than we could ever imagine, right? So longing in darkness, longing means believing, and then longing fulfilled. So Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, and he says nevertheless because he's just been telling them about some really bad things that are going to happen. They're going to happen. They're on the, on the horizon. Right? This is, he's just been telling them, here's what you're getting ready to experience. And then he says, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He's referring to places up north that have seen some really bad troubles with some people called the Assyrians that we'll talk about in a minute. 
But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You, that is God, have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod, and the, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Now, what he's referring to there is something that God had done through a guy called Gideon, where Gideon took a handful of people, like 300, that he sort of whittled down to just a small group, and then defeated a gigantic army with 300 people. Just like you did on the day of Midian, for every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will open this text, or rather open our hearts, and pour this text into them so that we can hear you speaking not just about some things that happened to some people who lived a long time ago that we can hardly relate to, but as your living and active word that digs deep into us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. So, longing in the darkness. So, before we get started, we probably have to do a little bit of background here about Isaiah or just prophet. When you hear prophet, what do you think? right? I mean, there's people who build whole entire ministries on prophecy, right? And even though they're told, we're told, that we don't know the times and the dates and things, there's people who build whole ministries doing what? Telling you the times and the dates and what's going to happen and what's happening in the news, all this kind of stuff. And we think of all that, I'm just going to call it stuff, we think of all that as prophecy. It's like a bunch of guys who lived a long time ago, who predicted the future, like Bible fortune tellers. Well, of course they are people who lived in the past, but they didn't simply tell the future. They're not just sort of God's army of fortune tellers, like with sort of Bible crystal balls. They didn't just say, hey, you know what? This is really awesome. You don't, you're not going to believe it. There's going to be all kinds of stuff. It's going to happen. I'll tell you all about it. They weren't simply interested, nor were they sent by God simply just to predict the future. Though that is almost sometimes entirely how we think of them. And, you know, they seem kind of strange, too, the way they talk. And like, they're talking to people who lived a long time ago, and they're talking to some nations that are no longer even there. But they are the prophets, primarily the prophets of the coming Messiah. But when, and I'll just use Isaiah. Here's what they do, though. So they come to a man and they remind Israel of who God is and what he has done. Always. They don't just jump in and say, hey, someday in the future, the moon's going to explode and you're not going to believe what's going on. They always start with 
who God is, and they interlace their, all their books, who God is, what he has done for them. Always. That he's their creator. He's the creator of everything. He's the creator of all those nations that they're having such a hard time with. He is their creator. He is especially their savior and their God. Always. Everything that they have to say to the Israelites, whether in the north or in the south, is always couched in that sort of way. Who is God and what has he done and what does he promise for you? That's what they talk about with the future. Secondly, they talk about what the people have done, and it's almost always bad. But what is it? It's not just, hey, you've messed up again. There you go again. It is no. You've done two things. You've committed idolatry, that is, sin against God, and you've committed injustice, that is, sin against others, right? You didn't love God, and you didn't love neighbor. That's the entirety of the thing. And they figured out all kinds of different ways to do it. But that's what it is. It's not just, oh, there you go again. You people are horrible. You just, again, you messed up. No, it is exposing their sin in light of who God is and what he has done and what is pleasing to him and what he has promised them. Right? So their sin is revealed to them. Their sin is condemned against that backdrop. But then they don't leave it at that. They tell them about what God is going to do in spite of their sin. You know why? Because God has kept, God has kept his promises and will keep his promises. And they remind him, they remind the people of God's promises in the past. And then they give him these great promises for the future so that they can live in the day they're living, which is, in this case, and in most cases, a really dark day. And that darkness is not going to go away. Because faith doesn't come and be like, oh, it's dark. Oh, it's light. No. It's faith in the midst. It's light in the darkness. And so the prophets preached, proclaimed. The prophets came and proclaimed a message for repentance, not just information about the future. It's a very personal message to a very particular people who relate in a particular way to God. And it is a message of repentance for forgiveness and hope for the future. That's why they came. And so Isaiah comes, and Isaiah ministered sort of 740 B.C. to around 681 B.C. It's a pretty long time. He, he, he prophesied under four different kings, and the king that we're worried about today, or not worried about, in our text today is a guy called Ahaz. There you can see this is uh, sort of Israel more or less in Isaiah's day, sort of. Don't worry about the names. So below you have see Judah, right? So there's kind of, they, they, they had split right after King Solomon, right? So if you want to know how things are going to go in the trajectory of the Old Testament, the minute this kingdom splits in two, you already know it's going to be a disaster, right? And so uh, Isaiah and Ahaz the king, they're down south. That purple area is the northern kingdom, uh, which we'll hear about in a minute. And so Ahaz had a problem. He has, Ahaz is a king. He's not a nice priest. He's not a great person. Uh, he's got a huge problem, though, and that huge problem is that above them, there is this vicious group of people called the Assyrians. They are vicious. I mean, they're, they're coming, and when they come, it is bad. I mean, we're talking total destruction, outright slaughter, 
I mean, raping of women, killing of children, total subjugation of whole nations by these people. I mean, it is a take-no-prisoners sort of situation. And the people who are left are drug all over the world in exile and put everywhere. And these are the people at, just like at their doorstep. And so Ahaz makes this sort of deal. Isaiah told him not to. Ahab makes this deal with the Assyrians, he and some buddies up north uh, in Syria and then in the northern kingdom. They make sort of this deal, and they're going to pay off the Assyrians to keep them out. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. Only thing it really did was that bought them some time where it looked like things are going pretty well down south. But it also totally bankrupted the people and the nation. Totally bankrupted them. And it didn't work. So here's the situation. Don't pay attention to those one, two, three and all those lines. So see Jerusalem down there. And by the way, I always tell my students, when you preach, don't use maps. Because right? it's super dorky, it's really distracting, but I mean, it's okay if I do it, right? Because it just is, right? It's sort of like, you know, don't try this at home. Um, but anyway, but I always tell them, don't use maps, right? But in this case, obviously, exception. So there's Jerusalem down there. You see Damascus, that's Syria. So in 700, I think I got this right, 732, the Assyrians... They take over Syria. No, yeah, the, that's not the same thing, right? So you have Syria and Assyria. So the Assyrians come down. They take Damascus, 732. Now, Damascus is about 135 miles north, basically from here to Indianapolis. Even without a car, that's pretty darn close to have those folks breathing down your neck. Ten years later, 722 B.C., they take the northern kingdom, starting with the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it's horrible. The reports are horrible, what they're doing to everyone. Now, this gets them about more or less 25 miles away, like here to LaGrange. In LaGrange right now, imagine... Right? If you're from LaGrange, I don't mean you. But imagine in LaGrange right now, there is an unstoppable, vicious, savage people bent on the destruction of you, your loved ones, your children, your way of life, everything you hold dear, and you can't stop them. You can do nothing. Your army cannot help you. And you know it's coming. And you know what they do. And you know the humiliation and the degradation and the utter hopelessness of what's coming. And that's what Isaiah's been telling them about, about what's going to happen. Then we get to our text, and it sounds like, if you, if you paid attention, I'm sure you did, it sounds like in 9, 1 through 7 that Isaiah's talking about stuff that God has done already, right? The people who were sitting in darkness have seen a great light, and God has enlarged the nation, and he has broken the yoke of the oppressors, but... These things have not happened. They haven't happened. Isaiah is speaking of them as, they have ha as though they've happened because Isaiah is leading the people through this text into faith. It is seeing a great light by faith, not because there's a great light. In fact, there's no light. 
It is only the light of faith. The only thing they can see is the world's worst army flooding down on them. And what they don't know, of course, is the Assyrians, believe it or not, are going to get beat, but right on their heels coming an even bigger power called the Babylonians who are going to ravage them. Not long after, just a couple of decades later, basically, a few decades later, they're going to wipe out Jerusalem. They're going to cart them off into exile up to Babylon. It is getting ready to get really bad. And so when Isaiah says, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and that God has enlarged the nation and increased its joy, the people, the, the people who have rejoiced, he is not talking about something that is evident to them in the moment. And that's what faith is. Faith is a longing. Faith means in the midst of what looks like total disaster, in the midst of things that don't make sense, in the midst of everything that might say, there's not a lot of hope here, right? I mean, nobody's going to look at the… In other words, Isaiah doesn't expect them to hear this message and for them to look at the Assyrians and be like, that's not a problem. What they're going to do to me, my kids, my family, my nation, it's okay. I mean, I've I got faith after all. It's no problem. It's like, you know, water off a duck's back, if that makes any sense to you, right? So, my dad used to say that all the time. It's no problem, but, but we sometimes think of it that way, right? We sometimes think of, well, faith just means you look at bad stuff and it's no longer bad. Well, no, of course it's bad, right? Being slaughtered, always bad. There's not like a ice, there's not like a great way to think about, there's a lot of people who are going to die, That's, but it's okay. No, faith is light in the midst of darkness. It is it is seen by faith, but not based on what you see around you. And that's what Isaiah is calling these people to. Because if, you, if you're thinking, oh, I don't know about that, all you got to do is just read the verses ahead of it. Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward. They will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the... Uh, they will only see distress, darkness, and gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. I mean, it's pretty bad. And if you go past verse 7, which I'm not going to do, you can see they're not seeing with their eyes a great light. It is the scene, it is the scene of faith because longing, longing, and here I really mean faith, puts us right directly in the situation of where it is not what we see, but what God promises us. What they see is not good. What God promises them is better than anything they can imagine. And, they, and they're longing for it. And they're, they're waiting for it. And they have this picture in verses 4 and 5 of like total destruction of their enemies. But their enemies are not destroyed. In fact, things are going to get bad. They're going into exile. And Isaiah is going to make that really clear to them later in the book of Isaiah. But here you have this moment, this vision of faith. Now, and he reminds them, right, just like God did with, in Midian, now, which I talked about earlier. But what he, what he reminds them of is this, is that faith, longing, in the darkness does not mean that there's no more darkness. It is faith in 
the darkness. Not all of a sudden that you wake up, you're like, my life is pretty dark, but it's not. It is, but it's not, right? I'm just smiling through it, right? I'm just going to keep smiling because everything is falling apart, but it's not falling apart if I just believed more. I just have to believe more. I must not be believing enough. I'll get back to that in a minute. It's not the absence of anxiety and doubt and fear. It is believing God's word and promise in the face of anxiety and fear. Not because you wake up and you're like, oh, I must have believed enough last night because, hey, all that stuff is gone. I, I really believed good, well, a lot. Hold it, it's back. Must not be believing enough. Got to get some more faith. Because I can feel my problems are back. No, it is faith in the face of those things. It is God's promise based on who God is, what He has done, His perfect track record in the past that guarantees, this, guarantees the future so that you can live by faith today, not in some kind of Pollyanna like, oh, everything's fine kind of way, but clinging to God's promise where He doesn't tell you, you know the stuff in your life that you're struggling with and it is wiping you out and killing you right now? It's actually... It actually should be making you feel good. No, right? We know that all things work together for good. That's a knowledge of faith, not by sight, right? And so same thing here. Same thing here. It's not the disappearance of troubles and anxieties and depression and tragedy, but faith in the face of it. Now, we have to be careful. We have to be really careful because the message is not, the message of faith is not, well, just hang in there. Right? Like that, remember that poster with the cat, right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But it's not just, hey, hang in there. It's going to get better. Just smile on through it. Grin and bear it. No. Right? But sometimes we hear it that way. Sometimes we think, I just need to be happier in the midst of this. Well, that's not where you start. Faith does this. Faith says, in spite of all that around you, God keeps His promises, and it's believing when you can't see it. It's believing when all the evidence is stacked up against you not to believe it. If all the evidence was there, and you could see it all, and it really was like everything is better all the time, you should rejoice because you're in heaven, right? You woke up in heaven. And that's great, right? But you might not wake up in heaven tomorrow. It's faith. It's longing for God's promises. And it's not God just saying to you, by the way, it's just put up with it now, and one day it'll all go away and everything's going to be fine. Faith is God's power in your life. It's God's power in your life for you to live today by doing what? It's that future promise brought into the present that you have now. To rem so rem if you don't remember anything else, remember this. A promise from God is as good as a promise kept. If God promises us anything, we have it by faith. He's not just leading us along like I'm going to make you some promises 
just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, bear it up, bear it up, get better, believe some more, do some more stuff, and then finally you're getting to heaven, I'm like, finally you made it. No, it is the future blasting its way into the present that is filled with darkness and saying, I'm on your side, that's God, and I'm giving you all my promises, you know, for what? For free because of the one who came, because I kept my word in the past. That's what faith does. It's not the disappearance of the stuff, it's the unveiling of the stuff, because one of the pitfalls of longing and of faith is this, is we do have a tendency, and I think, I think Ty mentioned it earlier, we do have a tendency when we're longing and hoping for something to kind of fill that up ourselves and hope, and you know, like, find things that look good, that taste good, that feel good, that seem good, that make us feel better, and we grab a hold of those as sort of like little ways of trying to fulfill our longing ourselves. Right? It's like why there's no amount of presence that ultimately make you think, oh, I'm good. I don't want anything anymore. I'm never going to need to check my Amazon app again. Right? Because there's nothing on these Black Friday deals that I could possibly ever want. And I'm never really going to buy something I don't even want just because it maybe makes me feel a little better to buy. That's never going to, no. There's a reason why, because, and those things are fine. Gifts, presents, good. I'm all for presents, by the way. But what faith does, it's not just about presents. Faith comes and pulls the veil back on all those things that we take that we see, that we think, oh, this will give me some relief right now. This will make me feel better right now. This is going to give me some relief. This is bad. I shouldn't do it. I know it, and I hope nobody ever knows I'm doing this, but this is going to make me feel a little bit better right now in the midst of this longing because, honestly, I, I can't. I need something right now. Faith comes and pulls the veil back and reveals every sort of pit stop, everywhere we stop short and try to fill things up, on our own, apart from God's promise in Christ, it pulls the veil back and shows and reveals those things as cheap imitations of what's real. And, but it doesn't necessarily make them evaporate. The Assyrians don't just all of a sudden evaporate. But the message from Isaiah is this. They don't have the last word. They might claim to have the last word. It might look like they have the last word, but they don't have the last word, and God's going to keep his promise. And so that brings us to the last thing, and that is how God fulfills our longing. And he does it in ways that are both at first maybe seem underwhelming, but then in ways that are beyond imagination. Now, it takes 800 years, 800, eight minutes for me seems like a lot. If I think something's happening, I'm like, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, that was like eight minutes ago, eight days, eight, mo eight months is like an eternity, 800 years. You know what? It was 800 years of suffering. And every time that life seemed to be getting better, it, got, it would get worse. 
And, find, and they, this is the, even, even when the Jews come back to the land, it's still horrible. They're, they start fighting each other eventually. And then you got this new sort of kid on the block. If the Syrians back then weren't bad enough, if the Babylonians were bad enough, now we got Rome, and they're everywhere. And they're not going anywhere. And yet, they have these, God, they have these promises from God. 800 years. Longer than that if you keep going back. And so what does God do? Because they know, look, look, what they, look what they know from Isaiah. A child will be born for us, right? A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Now, that doesn't simply mean, isn't he wonderful? But he is, but it means pointing towards one who does wondrous things beyond imagination that reveal God's wisdom. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father. Now, that one might seem a little confusing because you know who this is talking about, right? It's not a secret. We all know who this is talking about. Eternal Father, and we think, uh-oh, hmm, maybe we've got a problem with the Trinity here. Nope. Isaiah's not giving like a symposium on the Trinity. It's not a theological roundtable. He's not sort of unorthodox. He's saying... Eternal Father, like the way a father is. He's not naming him, right? Like with the, as the first person of the Trinity. This one coming is like a father. Like the way a father does what? Like the way a father leads, guides, advises, protects, sustains. This one's coming. And he's the Prince of Peace. And he says the government will be on his shoulders, and there will be a time of justice and righteousness, which is the catchwords for what? Life before God that is pleasing to God, that is acceptable to God, in a perfect relationship with God, justice and righteousness, where, where everyone, where the whole thing is marked with living for God and living for one another. Love God, love your neighbor. I mean, these are huge promises, right? But what you see are Assyrians, or what you see, this is for the Israelites, coming back as sort of more wars. Now what you see are Romans all over. I mean, all over. And then, what does God do? He appears to the most mighty people in Israel, the richest, the most powerful, the influencers. Nope. He appears to a girl, a, a young girl. 800 years later, we've seen this in Matthew 1. Let me reverse this. First, he appears to, let me talk about this first. I'm going I'm to back it up. He appears to this man who's married to the girl I mentioned. Now, here's a guy who's got a bit of a problem, and that is his wife is pregnant. Now, why is that a problem? Because he didn't do it, right? And just because he lived in the first century didn't mean he didn't know how that happened, right? We sort of have, a thing, we have sort of this way of thinking, well, they believed anything back then. I mean, who knows, right? I mean, they're not like us, super smart, right? He knows how people get pregnant, and he knows that his wife is pregnant, but not because of him or his, you know, wife-to-be. And I'm sure they had neighbors, right? I'm sure there's neighbors in the first century, too, who were like, hmm. 
she putting on weight? What's going on over there? All right? He knows all these things are happening. And then an angel appears to who? This guy. And by the way, this guy is the king. He's super rich. Nope, he's a carpenter. So remember the promises from Isaiah? An angel appears to this carpenter with this pregnant wife-to-be and says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, this is from Isaiah, by the way, from just a little bit before our text. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. To a carpenter. And then to Mary. You could not get sort of a more regular, basically unnoteworthy couple if you tried. The angel came and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was troubled, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Remember Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 7, the throne of David? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. For unto us a child is born, to a carpenter and a young woman, and then what did God do next in this sort of series of revealing? Well, he went to Herod and he, the influencers, the powerful, the people who had all the sway, the people who you want to know, right? The people who make everything great, people who are on the billboards. I don't know, they didn't have billboards, but the people that everybody knew. Nope. Who's he go to? The most blue collar as you can get of all shepherds. Right? <laughs> The people standing in darkness have seen a great light. This is going to be revealed to this young couple, to shepherds. Shepherds! These are people who, they can't even go to the temple because they're unclean all the time because they're around these sheep constantly. These are people completely on the outside. And all of a sudden, it says, and there was in that same country shepherds in the field at night keeping watch over their sheep. And the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were horribly afraid. And the angel said, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those upon whom his favor rests. That's the light in the darkness. 
The light and the darkness is a baby wrapped up like any other baby, except this one is in a barn. A barn. 800 years of longing? Baby in a barn? Really? That's what we're, that's what we're shooting for here? Right? I mean, but this is what God does. Because God takes our longings and says, you know what? You know those longings? You know those longings? You know all those years of faith? You know those days and long days of faith? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fulfill that in ways that you will not even be able to grasp. But it's faith who sees in a baby, in a barn, the light that is shining in the darkness. The one who is wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's how God has revealed it. And then Jesus comes, and in his ministry, it all starts where? We've seen this before. Right before Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he goes up to Capernaum. And this is what Matthew says. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Do you remember that from Isaiah? From Isaiah 9 verse 1, where all the bad stuff started? Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's how God fulfills their longings. And you know the story, I won't go back through it, but think how many times we've seen in Matthew where Jesus comes and the way he fulfills his longings are not what a lot of people are interested in. But yet he comes and says things like what? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Remember in Isaiah that God breaks the yoke of their oppressors and Jesus comes and says, Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I'm meek and gentle. <laughs> this is the fulfillment of all those prophecies, all of them. It is God's perfect fulfillment of his perfect promise to them in Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth. And that's what we're celebrating, that God has not only kept his promise, but he's kept it in unbelievable, immeasurable, and totally unexpected ways. And we're also now longing, because Advent, like I said at the beginning, Advent is not just a time of looking back, it's a time of looking forward, because we are still longing. You can feel it, right? You can feel it every day, this longing. Sometimes it's just a vague sense of, you know what, it's just not, things are just not right. right. And so I'm not trying to take away from the celebration of Advent or Christmas. But I think if we just only focus on the things that are, are great and good, but only can give us sort of like temporary and then we need to reset, then this season's going to go right by us and we're going to be like, mm, next year. 
So the message here today, the message of faith, is not that faith comes and God says to you, just hang in there, faith comes. It doesn't mean the evaporation of darkness. It doesn't mean all of a sudden, hey, it's nighttime, but I can see or I can make sense of every single thing that's happened in my life. Faith comes and says, God keeps his promise. And God doesn't come to you and say, hey, just get some more faith. And with this, I want to close. We sometimes treat faith. You ever heard of the prosperity gospel, right? If you just believe more or whatever, or sorry, give more than you're going to get more. Now, most of us would be like, that is nonsense. But you know what? We treat faith in the same sort of way. And we'll think, if I just believe more, I wouldn't still have this temptation in my life. I must not be believing enough. I gotta go give me some more belief. I better go pick up some more faith. Because if I had, and then maybe somebody even tells you, you know, if you believed more, maybe you'd be relieved from that anxiety or that sort of depression or that distress or whatever maybe it is. If you, you just need to believe more. God never comes and says, hey, you need to believe more. God simply comes and says, believe in me. Why? Because I've kept my promises, and I am who I say I am, and you will find rest in the midst of those things, right? Jesus came in the midst of all those things, and he suffered all of them, right? He suffered all of them. And he comes and gives us this gift of faith, which is just a mustard seed. It is not something you can even measure. And so what do we do? We don't just, I need to get some more faith so that this temptation will no longer be a temptation. If I just had more faith, I wouldn't be attracted to this thing anymore. No, faith looks inside and says, guess what? Empty, all by myself, I mean. Faith turns and looks to God and says, God, I want to believe. I'm dying to believe. Help my unbelief. And God never answers with, well, as soon as you get a little more faith, I'll help you believe a little more. It's a give and go. You know, it's sort of, you, you know, you get out what you put in. It is not a deal. It is not a transaction. It is not some sort of payment you put down so that God's like, all right, now, faith is a gift. And God invites us to stop reaching out for all those things that seem like gifts and reach out to Him with open hands because He has said He will fill us with His presence. He will. We need to believe not have more faith, but we need to, and if you're feeling like, yeah, that's great, I don't know how to do that. That's the best way to start. The best place to start is like, I don't even know what to do. It's a way worse start to think, here's the five things I gotta do, right? And sometimes that's, sometimes there's some place for that, I get it. But the place to start today is not like, okay, I'm gonna get some faith, and then I'm gonna put these things into action actionable plans. Now, that's fine and all. The place to start today is, you might even, you know what? You might even look at God today and say, you know what, God? I'm speaking to you right now, but my faith is just south of shaky. And that's okay. 
That's okay. It's a mustard seed, and it's a gift. And that's what we're celebrating here at Advent. God's mighty, upending, amazing work of keeping his promise in the form, in the person of a baby in a cattle stall who died for our sins so that we can be set free from all those things, so that we can believe and receive from God by faith alone, apart from anything that we've done, anything that we do, anything that we will do, faith alone, believing that God keeps His promise and has done so in Jesus of Nazareth, so that we can look back and rest in God's perfect work in the past in Jesus that guarantees if Jesus came and was born and died and rose again, that He will come back and we can live by faith today as we start this Advent season. Let's pray together. Father, help these not to just be words, not just things that come out of my mouth and we all hear them and they go in and then go out. But strengthen us, Lord, to hear them as a word from you that we can have not on the basis of how psyched we are at the moment, but on just the longing that we have that you have and continue to fulfill in us. Give us, Lord, the faith, the eyes of faith to see that you, in fact, do fulfill all of our longings. In Christ's name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed that one who began life in that barn. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you as a gift. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we're going to do right now. And so I invite you, Christian, to come forward and we'll have servers here in the middle. If you have a, there's a gluten-free option, there's wine in the cup that's wound with a piece of twine, just ask you to come and receive this gift. And I can tell you, I can tell you that God freely offers forgiveness in Jesus by faith. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.